We come before You, Lord, trembling. We come before You seeking truth. And we come before You people who are here because of the grace of Jesus Christ. So thank You, Lord, and bless the rest of our time now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Isaiah 21 and 22. We're going to do most of those two chapters tonight. I'm going to leave the last section of chapter 22 for Sunday. Let you know ahead of time. But we have a collection of four more burdens directed first at Babylon, secondly at Edom, which we talked about Sunday, so we'll just breeze through that one. Third, a burden directed at Arabia. And finally... In all of these burdens, one directed toward Jerusalem. And we're going to look at these. And there's, again, an individual warning against a steward of Hezekiah's court named Shebna, but we're going to look at that on Sunday. So we'll start off and we'll just use this as our outline. Number one, the burden of Babylon. The burden of Babylon, chapter 21, verse 1. Isaiah begins, The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea. The wilderness of the sea. As we've already seen in a number of passages with Isaiah, this prophet was a literary genius. He's remarkable in his use of words. He's a wordsmith. You know, the way he uses words and the words he chooses and inspired obviously by the Spirit of God, but I believe the Holy Spirit is using this this linguistic gift throughout the book. And Isaiah writes in such a unique and a powerful way. And and as we talked about, I'll just remind you that those who say that there's 1st Isaiah and Deutero or 2nd Isaiah and possibly a third because they see differences. When you look at the linguistics of Isaiah, when you look at the word choices, remember words he uses in the first part of the book are words he uses in the second part of the book. The same style, the same sense of phrasing. The same literary choices. And so, it's very much a cohesive book. And I, I for one, believe it's simply a work of the enemy to try to divide, even though scholars may come along and say, oh, yes, this must be different than this, and so we're going to draw a line. No, I think the enemy would divide the Word of God. But the Word of God always stands. And we'll see that more tonight. But we begin here with this wilderness of the sea. Isaiah calls Babylon the wilderness of the sea. Why? Because it was located in the the land of the Chaldeans, the lower Euphrates River, that whole area around the lower Euphrates was very marshy, It it was full of tributaries, and it was known, it was said to float on the marshes. So all the cities built there, and Babylon itself was built. You you know, the the Euphrates comes right into Babylon and goes around it and and has waterways underneath it and through it that apparently was was, uh, figured out by Queen Semiramis all the way back with Nimrod, the wife of Nimrod. I'm not going to get all into that. But it was because of all this water, it was often referred to as the wilderness of the sea. In fact, Jeremiah does it too. Speaking to Babylon in Jeremiah chapter 51, verse 13, he calls it, he says, O you who dwell by many waters. So the wilderness of the sea, you who dwell by many waters, it's Babylon. Now the next word picture he uses are windstorms in the Negev, or the Negev, as the Hebrew people, the Jewish people would pronounce it. The oracle concerning the wilderness of the sea as windstorms in the Negev sweep on It comes from the wilderness from a terrifying land. The windstorms from the Negev don't refer to Babylon. Okay, Babylon's the wilderness of the sea. These windstorms, gang, are a confluence of two nations, two nations who would sweep away Babylon, as we see going on in verse 2. A harsh vision has been shown to me. The treacherous one still deals treacherously, and the destroyer still destroys. Now that's Babylon, the treacherous one. Go up, Elam. Lay siege, Media. I have made an end of all the groaning she has caused. So Babylon, the treacherous destroyer, the one who has caused much groaning, Babylon's going to come to an end. And that's this oracle, that's this burden, this prophecy. But the ones who would do that, the dual-edged sword of God's wrath against Babylon, are Elam and the Medes. In Isaiah's day, Elam was the region of Persia. It would be called Persia. But 150 years before that, at Isaiah's time, it was the region of the Elamites, or Elam. The Medes, obviously, are 
are media. So you've got media and Persia, which are the two uh, countries that formed together an alliance and took out Babylon when that whole thing occurred. What's amazing to me is that as for the Medes, this is one of the few times in all of history when the media is on the side of the Lord. It's remarkable. (laughs) Verse 3. For this reason, my loins, he says, are full of anguish. Pains have seized me like the pains of a woman in labor. I am so bewildered, I cannot hear. So terrified, Isaiah says... I cannot see. My mind reels. Horror overwhelms me. The twilight I longed for has been turned for me into trembling. The twilight I longed for, you think about the end of a long day. You ever just look forward to the evening when you can kick off your shoes and catch your breath? And that's what he's saying. I was looking forward to evening, but it became dark night. It became a nightmare for me. Now this is fascinating to me. Isaiah is talking about his reaction to this burden against Babylon, that pagan nation that would take out Israel. And his reaction is one of horror. The prophet is saying, I am terrified by what I see. I am horrified by this. I'm like a woman in childbirth. I mean, that's pretty extreme right there, guys. I mean, I I have experienced three times my wife giving birth, and it was tough. I was wiped out all three times. I'm telling you, it's exhausting. For a man to say, I'm like a woman in the pains of childbirth. This is serious. And I got to thinking about this. How, How does a prophet see a vision? You know, it's real easy to read the words of Scripture and just kind of skim across them, you know. Isaiah saw this vision of Babylon being destroyed. Okay, cool, what's the next thing? And we need to stop for a moment and think about that. He saw a vision. In verse 6, he writes, the Lord said to me. So one way that a prophet expresses what he learns from the Lord is an audible word. God talked to Isaiah. God spoke to Isaiah. He heard the word of the Lord, and he then spoke the word of the Lord. Over in chapter 22, verse 14, he writes that the Lord of hosts revealed himself to me. So another way that a prophet expresses the, the will of the Lord is by divine intention. So, number one, he hears the word of the Lord, an audible word. Number two, he has the impression of God's divine intention. You get that sometimes, don't you? Where you know what God desires in a situation. You know, even in personal choices in your life, you say, I know what God wants me to do here. And so the prophet would hear the Lord speak. He would have a sense of his divine intention. But here, remarkably, Isaiah says, I see a vision. I'm seeing this thing. He calls it up in verse 2 a harsh vision. The word harsh in Hebrew is kashé. And kashé means cruel, troublesome, grievous. He was bewildered by it. He actually sees Babylon overthrown. Not just the city, but the, the suburbs and the towns leading up to the city being wiped out one after the other as the Medes and the Elamites come on against Babylon. It was a bloodbath. And Isaiah sees this. Recognizes what's going on. We don't know exactly what he saw, but we can guess because of his reaction to it, it was a bloody carnage. The forces of Cyrus, again, the Persians and the Medes, which would happen 150 years later, sweep through Chaldea, leading up to the capital city itself. Truly an apocalyptic nightmare if you just woke up. I mean, we've all had nightmares. We've all had bad dreams and we had trouble understanding what it was about. Isaiah saw this and it horrified him. The prophetic anointing among the Hebrew prophets, gang, it, it, it was not one that came to gift wrapped with pretty paper and nice bows. When you look at what the Hebrew prophets dealt with, not only what they shared, but what they had to deal with in their lives, their lives were tough. Jeremiah. Jeremiah calls out in chapter 20, verse 8, Each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. That's tough stuff. But, Jeremiah says, if I say I will not remember him or speak anymore in his name, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I'm weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. 
You know what Jeremiah says? The only thing worse than seeing these visions is not sharing them. The only thing worse is holding the word of the Lord in. Jeremiah, the weeping prophet, saw judgment right and left. And he said, you get the impression that he tried not to say what God told him to a few times. And it gave him heartburn in the worst kind of way. The only thing worse than the violent visions, he says, is keeping them to myself. I think of Daniel, who had to keep them to himself. Now there's a little bit different situation. Daniel, who spent his life in Babylon, from probably the age of 17, taken in the first deportation to Babylon. And then growing up, spending the the next 70 years he would live in Babylon, he would see through four different kings changing over nations and control there in Babylon, and he would never make it back to Judea. And this prophet, because he was in that location, wrote down the prophecies, but was told by God at the end of the book, seal this up. Don't tell people this. Think about that. Jeremiah said, it burns my heart to try and hold it in, and Daniel had to. We read about it in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, Daniel 10, and again in Daniel chapter 12, where he was literally sick on his couch for weeks on end because of the visions of prophecy. This is really serious business. Habakkuk, chapter 3, verse 16. The prophet said, I heard and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I tremble because I must wait quietly for the day of distress for the people to arise who will invade us. The prophets often were terrified in their homes. Terrified of the word they had to share, terrified by the word they could not share. And so Isaiah comes along, and I take a moment with that just so that we get the sense of this. Isaiah is sick about this horrifying thing that he must share. Aren't you thankful that our primary message is one of grace? Thank you, Lord. I was reading Isaiah's words and thinking, I'm not sure the last time I had to preach a sermon when I felt like I was in the throes of childbirth. I mean, I've had a few times when I was like, all right, here we go. But never like that. And we always have the joy of landing on the grace of Jesus Christ, on the invitation of Jesus Christ. And that's, that's our message. Paul said in Titus 2.11, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. What a great message. That is good news. That's my message. That's yours. Oh, but I'm not an evangelist. It's remarkable when you look at the prophets and how hard the word was that they were to share and they had to share it and then God gives us grace. How hard is that really? <laughs> you know? How hard is it for us to talk about Jesus when all we're talking about is love, compassion, forgiveness, redemption, eternal salvation, hallelujah. That's good stuff. So let it roll off your tongue. Paul said in Acts 20, verse 24, the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus is to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. So that's our message. And the gospel is grace. Although Paul did call it the solemn grace of God. The gospel that is a solemn gospel. And why is that? Well, because for there to be grace, there has to be a need for grace. And for us to come to grace, and you know this, you had to become aware of your sin, and that's not pretty. And that's a tough thing to face up to. The realization that I have a need. So, I remind you again what the prophets foretold, that the end comes, and the end comes quickly, and so there is a burden that comes along with the blessing that we share the gospel of grace, but we need to do it quickly. Because the end is coming. We've been given that truth in the form of words, in the form of visions, in the form of divine intentions by the prophets. And you'll see more of this as we go. Isaiah gets transported by vision to Babylon. He sees what's going to happen, and it is a scene of horror. Look at verse 5. 
They set the table. They spread out the cloth. They eat. They drink. Well, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? Someone's obviously getting ready for a little party. Yeah, it's the brazen banquet of Belshazzar. He's talking about right there, and you might want to put it in your notes, verse 5 is Daniel chapter 5. And this is what Isaiah is referring to. They set out. In Daniel 5, the buffoonish king, Belshazzar, Belshazzar, he, he threw a party. He called for the gold and silver vessels that his forebear, Nebuchadnezzar, had taken from the Jerusalem temple before destroying it. They were in storage in Babylon. He said, hey, go get those Jewish cups and saucers and dishes. The gold and silver, bring it out. And so what did they do? Well, they set the table, they spread out the cloth, they eat, they drink. But they were eating out of the holy chalices of the Lord. They took these things out for their foolish, drunken feast. But the nobles of Babylon, as they drank and partied and feasted in dumb ignorance, the imminent threat was encroaching on Babylon. You know the story. In fact, we've talked about it a couple of times, even since being in Isaiah. But don't forget the remarkable prophecy here. These people had 150 years advance notice of what was coming. Babylon had 150 years notice of exactly what was going to happen that's described in Daniel chapter 5. Isaiah has given it right here. The burden for Babylon. That's remarkable to me. And that's utterly amazing. Rise up, captains, oil the shields, for thus the Lord says to me, go station the lookout, let him report what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs... A train of donkeys, a train of camels, let him pay close attention, very close attention. What's he talking about? It's a vivid description of exactly how the Medes and the Persians went to war. And we know this historically speaking. Delich says contingents of cavalry and mounted cameliers formed a characteristic portion of the Medo-Persian armies. And so what Isaiah is saying is, look out, set a watchman, get someone up on the wall. 150 years ahead of time. Make sure someone's on the wall watching because you're going to see a train of donkeys, a train of camels. Pay close attention. The warning sign has been given. Did you know that the Lord called for an alert in Babylon? That He gave Babylon 150 years to prepare for the onslaught of their destruction? And it was ignored. Verse 8. Then the lookout called, O Lord, I stand continually by day on the watchtower, and I am stationed every night at my guard post. Now behold, here comes a troop of riders, horsemen in pairs, and one said, Fallen, fallen is Babylon, and all the images of her gods are shattered on the ground. Now listen, we know what happened. Babylon's watchmen were asleep. Babylon's watchmen did not call out what you just read in verses 8 and 9. So who did? I would, I would propose to you that it's God's watchmen. Perhaps angels. Perhaps it's just Isaiah himself in the vision crying out, Look out! They're coming! They're, they're coming! But, you know, no one heard him. No one heard if they were angelic watchmen. No one heard. But the Lord had His own watchmen sound the alarm, and yet no one listens. Now, here's the question. Why? Why would God do that? Why would he give warning to the pagan nation of Babylon? Now, don't you think it would be a better idea to keep it quiet, Lord? Sneak up on them surreptitiously and take them out! I mean, that's, that's how you go to war. You don't say, okay, we're coming, and we're going to go underneath and be ready. Set your watchmen. But that's exactly what the Lord did. Why? Because our God saves. Because our God is not into judgment, wrath, and calamity. That's not His desire. His desire is to save all people. His desire was to save Babylon from the very judgment that He pronounced on them. And so He gives warning. Warning that they might have opportunity to repent. Warning that they might realize that if we continue down this road, destruction will be in our way. The Lord is a God who saves. He has always been a God who saves. He has always been a God who has been about repentance unto redemption. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. All men except the Iranians, right? All men except the other political party, right? All men except those who disagree with my... 
All men. Second Peter 3.9 Not wishing for any to perish before all to come to repentance. So even with the pagan godless nations, as we've seen, with the exception of Jerusalem that we'll see in a minute, the rest of these oracles are all to the godless pagan nations. Then God is calling out to them, warning, fair warning, a burden of what's going to happen. Isaiah, who is a Jew, is looking at Babylon who will destroy Israel, will destroy Jerusalem, and his heart breaks for what's going to happen to Babylon. That is an amazing godly compassion. And it's a compassion that I believe that we are called to have. 1 John chapter 2, John writes, If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, and He Himself is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. And that verse stuns me. We've read that a few times. He's the propitiation for the sins of the whole world. What is that? Universal salvation? No. No. It's universal offering. Universal invitation. Christ's blood was spilled in such a way that every single man, woman, and child who's ever lived on the planet could be saved, but would have to choose to be saved. I I say all that simply to say, like Isaiah, we need to learn how to reject the us versus them mentality. And it's really hard to do. As I shared in prayer earlier, it really ticked me off today to find out that three circuit court judges overturned the voters of California, the voters who said we want to keep marriage as an institution between men, a man and a woman. The judges came along and said, unconstitutional, you can't do that. Really? So now three people are deciding instead of the people. Keep an eye out, gang. Why even go vote? Well, yeah. And see, this is exactly what the powers that be want you to think. Mm -hmm. Why even stand up for your rights? Well, we'll take care of you. Mm -hmm. We'll do it. We'll make sure the government has everything well in hand. And meanwhile, rights are slipping out right and left that we don't even realize are going away. Mm -hmm. And, And this is not a political speech. But I say this to say, it's not us versus them. It is not us versus them. We are on the side of the Lord. We already have the victory. We already have the coming kingdom. We are going home. We are saved. We are loved. We are redeemed. That's the truth. So we have nothing to worry about other than the lost souls that are all around us. Les was praying about that, and and I was thinking in this area right now, I got this picture in my mind as Les was praying of a pinprick of light in the midst of darkness that just spreads out in all directions. That's, that's what the bridge is. Along with other little pinprick fellowships, little spots of light here and there in a very dark place that runs all the way south beyond Coopville, runs all the way out. I mean, it, obviously, it's the entire world. But this is our region. This is the region God has called us to care about. These are the people... Yes, some of these liberal left-wing nut jobs, environmental wackos, need Jesus. But the, <laughs> but the political mind of Pastor Rick starts to look in askance and say, it's these people who made us plant 500 trees on our property that we didn't want to plant. Because of them. And all of a sudden, them, us, them. That's not the way of it. We've got to bridge this gap. And the only way we're going to do it is by the power of the Holy Spirit. We get out of the way and we say, God, them is who need you. And us have been called to bring the Gospel with love and compassion to them. It's not the Christians against the world. It's Jesus' blood offered for everyone. How do we square that with immoral, godless decisions in government? How do we square that with the sin that happens all around us? Very simply, we've been talking about this grace and truth. Grace and truth. We live in the grace of Jesus. We offer the grace of Jesus, but we tell the truth. We are uncompromising in truth, and we are uncompromising in the grace of God. We walk with both. Our message, in some ways, is very much like Isaiah's. He's giving a very severe warning, but he's doing it with a broken heart. He's doing it from a place of obvious, real concern. Look at verse 10. Oh, my threshed people and my afflicted of the threshing floor, what I have heard from the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, I make known to you. Who are these threshed people that Isaiah takes ownership of? Babylon. Oh, my threshed people. 
Unbelievable. That is the burden of the prophet, to make known the will of God, even to the enemies of Israel, even if that will is horrifying, even if it's frightening. And my friends, that's the burden of the Christian in these last days, to make known the will of God. Now again, our message is a much more inviting message, but there's also the dark side of the message that time is running out. There is grace, but there will be judgment. Choose grace now. That's the message of the church. Now, before we go on, and that's the message to Babylon, I want to remind you that while Isaiah spoke of Babylon's rise and fall, he never saw it, not in person. He saw it in vision, but not in person. Other prophets would actually see it. Jeremiah sat up on the Mount of Olives and watched the temple burn. Now, I've sat on the Mount of Olives, and I've looked across to the Temple Mount, and I've imagined the temple being there, and it's a marvelous place to sit and and just to think about the Lord and think about what's going to happen right there. But Jeremiah wept, watching the city of the Lord go up in flames. Daniel, as we mentioned before, went into captivity. In the first deportation, there were two, three deportations. He lived the rest of his days through the rise and fall of several kings there in Babylon. Ezekiel. Ezekiel was a priest. We're going to get to these prophets after Isaiah, Lord willing, and the saints don't rise. Ezekiel was a priest who never got to practice his priesthood in the temple because he was taken in the second deportation to Babylon when the temple was destroyed and lived out his days prophesying there in Babylon. Jeremiah. Daniel. Ezekiel, they all saw this happen. Isaiah preceded this event by 150 years. That's why the scholars, the pontificators, if you will, question the authenticity of the chapter that we're reading right now. They look at chapter 21 and they said, no, 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 no. It's too historically accurate to have been written by Isaiah a century and a half before it happened. Prophecy. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of the whole point, isn't it? Chuck Missler puts it this way in his book, Cosmic Codes, which is a really cool book. He writes, how does God authenticate His message? How does He assure us that the Bible is really from Him and not a fraud and not a contrivance? And that's a great question to ask. How does a God who's out time of, outside of time, space, and, and this dimension, who is truly extraterrestrial... How does he get a message to us that we know is authentic, that we know is from him? And Missler says by demonstrating that its source is from outside our time domain. In other words, God declares, I alone know the end from the beginning, Isaiah 46.10. His message includes history written in advance, and this is called prophecy. And the Lord does that to authenticate his word. So that we can look at his word and go, yeah, this is from God. Well, how do you know? Well, because Isaiah shared something 150 years before it happened, and it happened exactly as he said it. Jesus Christ fulfilled over 300 prophecies in his first coming. And there are more in his second coming. And as you've probably heard me say before, if he fulfilled those over 300 prophecies literally in his first coming, what makes us think they won't be literally fulfilled in his second coming? God gives the word to authenticate He gives prophecy to authenticate His Word. Isaiah 57, verse 15. For thus says the High and Exalted One who lives forever. Literally, the High and Exalted One who inhabits eternity. See, that's where God is. He's eternal. Not bound by time. He says, I dwell on a high and holy place and with the contrite and lowly of spirit in order to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. That's remarkable. I live in a high, holy place and in the heart of anyone who's humble enough to seek me. Reminds me of the verse we talked about last week, Isaiah 66.2. To this one I will look, to him who is humble, to him who is contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Now I point all this out to say that humility and Bible study have to go hand in hand. We have to open up the Bible humble and trembling before the Lord. Biblical scholarship, without acknowledging the author and finisher of not only this book, but our faith, biblical scholarship without acknowledging God is foolishness. 
It's foolishness because all it's going to do is lead to pride and arrogance and vanity and a puffed up spirit. Oh yes, I understand what the scriptures are declaring here. I just don't believe that Isaiah really wrote that. We got to go look over in Deutero Isaiah. And you get all these stupid thoughts coming from brilliant men. But these brilliant men are scholars who are studying to study. They are not looking for Jesus. They are not listening to the true author, to God the Father. Gang, it's one thing to ask questions of God. It's another thing to question God. And that's what so many scholars have done. So be careful of scholarship. Be careful. I mentioned conservative scholars because these tend to be the guys, they're the ones who are really looking for, Lord, what do you have to tell us? What are you trying to say? They're not looking to undermine Scripture or think their way around it. I ask questions all the time, but I have no right in my puny, limited, frail, uh, fallible state to question the motives or the actions or the will of God. I can't do that. He's God. I'm <laughs> I'm that. And yet, what is it? The, the clay questions the potter. That's not our right. Ask him questions, but don't question his will. I think that's faith. Isaiah 46, verse 9, Remember the former things long past, for I am God, and there is no other. I am God, there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning, and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established, and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. The authenticity then of this prophetic word, it directs us to the authority of the one who gave it. That's the whole point of prophecy. So let's go on. The next burden is the burden of Edom, the burden of Duma. We read on Sunday, verse 11, the oracle concerning Edom, or Duma. One keeps calling to me from Seir. Watchman, how far gone is the night? Watchman, how far gone is the night? The watchman says, morning comes, but also night. If you would inquire, come back again in Aramaic. Remember from Sunday? In Aramaic, the last three words are ask, come. Both those two words in Aramaic. Ask, tibayun, come, ata. But then, in Hebrew, shub, repent. Repent. Ask, come. Anyone can ask. Anyone can come. The lowest common denominator, Aramaic, that everybody spoke. Ask, come. But you've got to get to a point, if you're going to ask, if you're going to come, it leads you to the point of repentance. And that's in Hebrew. Why? Because it requires faith. It requires a step. It requires some exertion on your part to say, I do repent, Lord. I come to you in faith. So it's the watchman's invitation to the person in the silence of the night, the oracle concerning Duma. The next one, the oracle about Arabia. See, of our four oracles, we're already down to the third one. It's pretty good. The burden of Arabia, verse 13. The oracle about Arabia. In the thickets of Arabia, you must spend the night, O caravans of Dedanites. Bring water for the thirsty, O inhabitants of the land of Tamah. Meet the fugitive with bread, for they have fled from the sword, from the drawn sword, and from the bent bow, and from the press of battle. For thus the Lord said to me, In a year, as a hired man would count it, all the splendor of Kedar will terminate, and the remainder of the number of bowmen, the mighty men of the sons of Kedar, will be few, for the Lord God of Israel has spoken. A couple things to note there. He mentions this phrase. He says, in a year as a hired man would count it. We've seen that phrase twice now. What's he talking about? He's saying, in precisely a year. It's a great phrase because what he's talking about is if someone gets hired for a year, they know exactly how many days they're going to work for that year. And they know when they're done working and it's over. They're not going to work an extra day beyond what their hiring was for. You hire me for a year, I will work for a year, but I'm going to count every single day till I'm through working. That's what he's saying. So he's saying in the exact precision of someone who's counting the days until his job is complete, that's the kind of precision that this prophecy will be fulfilled. Now, there's a double meaning here in the word Arabia. The oracle about Arabia. And it depends on which Hebrew vowel signs are being used. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew, you know the Hebrew language, it's all consonants. 
All the letters in the Hebrew alphabet are consonants. When you look at a Hebrew word, for example, Yahweh, Y-H-W-H, it's, it's four consonants in the Hebrew. But what gives the vowel sounds are little vowel marks that they will tag onto one of the consonants, and that gives you the direction of what vowel sounds are supposed to land in between, in between the consonants. What's interesting here is the Hebrew word is Arab. Arab. But depending on what vowel sounds are used, it either means Arabic people, speaking of Arabia, or it means to become dark. Arabia, or to become dark, as in the the falling of night, as in evening. And I, I believe both are being used here. The oracle about Arabia, talking about the Arab people, in the thickets of Arabia, that's probably their evening. In the thickets of evening, you must spend the night. In other words, this oracle to the Arabic people, things are going to get dark for you. This burden, it speaks of a coming night for the Arabic tribes of Dedan and Kedar, these two tribal peoples. The whole region of Arabia was mostly tribal peoples. There were some nations, but there were a lot of tribal nomads that would move around, and some of them very large. Dedan and Kedar were two of these, and these two tribes today are the present modern-day inhabitants of Saudi Arabia. So you can note that in your Bibles, Dedan and Kedar, Saudi Arabia. Their kinsmen, the inhabitants of Timah, note that, O inhabitants of the land of Timah, meet the fugitive with bread. Timah of then is Yemen today. And if you, if you can imagine a map, and I don't know if you, if you can think of a map of Saudi Arabia, but Saudi Arabia, the Arabian Peninsula running all the way down to the bottom, at the bottom is Yemen against the sea. So Saudi Arabia right next to Yemen, and that's what this is talking about, Dedan and Qadar and Yemen down to the south. What the Lord is saying in this burden is Dedan, Qadar, flee south. Head south. Assyria is coming and they will wipe you out. Run to the south. Run to Timah. And to Timah or Yemen, he's telling them, receive your brothers, your Arab brothers, as they flee to you. Bring bread and water because they're going to be hard-pressed. They're going to come right out of battle. They're going to be in bad shape. (laughs) Lord, why are you caring? Do I care? We're watching the Arab Spring, so-called. It's really the Arab Winter. Let me ask you, how much prayer have you spent on your knees for the people who are being slaughtered in Syria? Let me just give a confession. I haven't really prayed a whole lot for the Syrians. I'm just thankful that they're busy with their own things so they're not bugging Israel. You know? Because I've chosen up sides. And that's not godly. Godliness is to say there are people dying in the streets of Syria... And we ought to be praying for them. There are people in Libya who are still a mess. Egypt is out of control. We ought to be praying for these. These are the Arab people. God gives oracles to Duma, to, to Arabia, uh, to Babylon. I mean, to all of these peoples who are not His people, His chosen children Israel. Why? Because He loves them. And I'm having to wrap my mind around this. We've got to learn. I've got to learn how to love more. Not judge so much. And there are areas in my life I didn't even know I was judging until I read this. Yemen. Wasn't Yemen where the USS Cole was bombed? Those Yemenis. I mean, Yemeni cricket. What are they thinking? My goodness. God loves these people. Well, well, of course He does. But it's a remarkable reminder that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. It's also a reminder as we read through these that every nation, every tribe, every tongue, and every people has their destiny square in the hand of God. Mm -hmm. He knows what's happening. He knows what's coming. He knows where it's all going. Now, so far, all of these burdens have been for the nations. In chapter 22, we come to Isaiah's burden over Jerusalem. Verse 1. The oracle concerning the valley of vision. Valley of vision. What's that? In the Hebrew, Yerushalayim. It's Jerusalem. 
And Isaiah calls Jerusalem the Valley of Vision. Gang, Jerusalem, the Bible calls it the city that is beautiful in elevation. And yet, if you've been there, you know it is a, it is a city of valleys. Valleys throughout. It's a mountainous region. It's the high point there in Israel. And yet, it's, it's full of valleys. It's got three primary valleys. The Kadron Valley that runs between the Mount of Olives and the Temple Mount, the Kadron Valley. It has the Tyropoian Valley, which literally means the Valley of the Cheesemakers. They should have a valley, I guess. And then there's the Hanam Valley, that used to be called the Valley of Tophet, where Molech's sacrifices went on. And then in Jesus' day, the Hanam Valley was primarily a burning garbage dump. And it was Gehenam, Gehenna, Gehenna, that he used as an example of hell. But those three valleys divide through, cut through Jerusalem. But Jerusalem itself, though it's beautiful in elevation, is also surrounded by larger mountains. I mean, it's got mountains in it. Mount Scopus, Mount Zion, Mount Olives, Mount of Olives, uh, Mount Moriah. But it has larger mountains around it. So it, it in itself is kind of a valley. So he calls it the Valley of Vision. Vision in the Hebrew is Chitzayon, which is prophecy. So you might note that. Or Revelation. The oracle concerning the Valley of Revelation. And it is a perfect name for Jerusalem because it is the Valley of Vision, the Valley of Prophecy, the Valley of Revelation. From the Hebrew prophets to Jesus Himself, to the prophecy, to the revelation of John, nowhere else can boast the amount of visions that have been given about Jerusalem. No other city has been spoken of more in prophecy than Jerusalem. It is truly the valley of visions. It is the city where the divine has touched the dirt and says, I care about it. This city is mine. Randall Price in his book, Jerusalem and Prophecy, wrote, No city has a greater rival for ruin than Jerusalem. In its 33 centuries of existence, it has been ravaged by frequent earthquakes and sacked by numerous invaders. Jerusalem has been the stage for 36 wars. It has endured over 20 sieges and blockades. Its hills have been leveled, its valleys filled, its buildings and temple burned twice. Its priests and people have been slain in the streets, sold into slavery, and exiled. The entire city has been reduced to absolute rubble 17 times. It's been rebuilt 18 times. And it suffered through two periods of desolation and diaspora. Jerusalem. Lamentations 2.13, Jeremiah said, How shall I admonish you? To what shall I compare you, O daughter of Jerusalem? To what shall I liken you as I comfort you, O virgin daughter of Zion? For your ruin is as vast as the sea. Who can heal you? Jeremiah, as he wrote Lamentations, sitting on the Mount of Olives, looking at the devastation. Broken by Babylon in 586. Ruined by Rome in 70 AD. As Jesus said it would be. Matthew 23.37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often have I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, Jesus says, your house is being left to you desolate. In Matthew 24, as they come out of the temple courts and they're walking down, and Peter and the boys say, isn't this just magnificent? Isn't this beautiful? Remember what Jesus said? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. For me, one of the most profound places in all of Israel is down below the Temple Mount on the southern side of the Temple Mount looking out at the very stones Jesus prophesied would be thrown down. They're still there. Stones that were once part of the Temple Mount, part of the Temple itself, It's believed. And the the street there, which was Herod's promenade, smashed as these massive stones are just piled up, dug out archaeologically after all these years, there they are, in the exact place where Rome threw them, just as Jesus said. It's incredible. (laughs) And yet Jerusalem stands. Jerusalem is a vibrant city. And it stands today at the center of the world and at the center of world attention 
Just what the Lord said, Ezekiel 5, 5. This is Jerusalem. I have set her at the center of nations with lands about her. It's the centerpiece. The key. As Joel Rosenberg calls it, it is the epicenter of world events in the final days. God said in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 2, Behold, I am going to make Jerusalem a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. And it will come about in that day that I will make Jerusalem a heavy stone for all the peoples. All who lift it will be severely injured, and all the nations of the earth will be gathered against it. But while the Valley of Vision is a perfect name for Jerusalem, it's also an ironic name. Because Isaiah calls the city the Valley of Vision, but its inhabitants are not visionary. In fact, its inhabitants in Isaiah's day were incredibly short-sighted. What is the matter with you? What is the matter with you now that you have all gone up to the housetops? You who are full of noise, you boisterous town, you exultant city, your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. All your rulers have fled together and have been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they fled far away. Listen to what he's talking about here. He, he's, he sees the people and they go rushing up onto their housetops. Why? Because they hear Assyria coming. So they're up on the tops of their houses and they're looking over the wall and they see this massive 180,000 man army approaching. Having laid waste to much of Judah, Judea, now they're approaching, coming up to Jerusalem, and the people are on their housetops, scared out of their minds. And he says, Your slain were not slain with the sword, nor did they die in battle. What's that mean? They were slain with famine. As Assyria laid siege to Jerusalem and cut off supply routes, people were starving. It would be worse when Babylon did the same. Prophecies of mothers eating their children and fighting over who gets the flesh of a baby that's died because things were so bad. So no, their slain were not slain with the sword. They died of starvation. They died of abject fear. Their rulers fled. You've been captured without the bow. All of you who were found were taken captive together, though they had fled far away. So he describes Jerusalem as this... This city that had great warning leading all the way up. But they're ignorant of it. Now, he gives this indication of Babylon, but then he pulls back. In fact, you might ask the question with chapter 22 and this whole prophecy for the Valley of Vision, is he talking about Assyria or is he talking about Babylon? And he's talking about both. The way this works, gang, it's a warning to Jerusalem that literally bridges the gaps of the Assyrian siege and the Babylonian conquest. That's what Isaiah is doing here. He's going from one to the other. You have the siege of Assyria. We're all familiar with that one, he's saying. But there's one coming that's worse. So Isaiah, as it were, stands in the gap between the two, the intimidation of Assyria and the incineration of Babylon. With Assyria, you recall... God gave Jerusalem a reprieve. He stopped. Assyria was in camp. They were going to take out Jerusalem and God stopped it. Supernaturally, He intervened. And that's important to remember. It was not a rescue. It was a reprieve. Big difference. God didn't just save Jerusalem and go, okay, you guys are good to go. Although the Jerusalemites reacted that way, yes! Look at all the dead Assyrians. Party time! And now they're on their rooftops partying and having a great time. You'll see this later in the chapter. But God gave a reprieve. A reprieve to delay punishment. An opportunity for repentance. But there would be none. Watch this, verse 4. Therefore I say, Isaiah speaking, turn your eyes away from me. Let me weep bitterly. Do not try to comfort me concerning the destruction of the daughter of my people. For the Lord God of hosts has a day of panic, subjugation, and confusion in the valley of vision. A breaking down of walls and a crying to the mountain. He is now weeping over Jerusalem just as Jeremiah would weep over Jerusalem 150 years later. Just as Jesus would weep over Jerusalem 400 years after that. Weeping for Jerusalem. Verse 6, 
Elam took up the quiver with the chariots, infantry, and horsemen. And Kir uncovered the shield. And then your choicest valleys were full of chariots, and the horsemen took up fixed positions at the gate. This perfectly describes the Assyrian siege now of Jerusalem. And, and Isaiah is reminding the people of what happened. Elam and Kir, by the way, at that point were under the power of Assyria. Part of the reason that Elam sided with the Medes in taking out Babylon is because Babylon took out Assyria before. So there was some bitterness there. Isaiah now stands between this Assyrian siege and the Babylonian conquest. Read on. And he removed the defense of Judah. What's that mean? It means he, he the outposts, the towns, the, 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 um, the fortifications were wiped out as Assyria came in. All the way up to Jerusalem, up to the neck of the country. In that day, you depended on the weapons of the house of the forest. What is that? That's the armory of Jerusalem. The weapons of the house of the forest is the armory. And you saw that the breaches in the wall of the city of David were many. And you collected the waters of the lower pool. And then you counted the houses of Jerusalem and tore down houses to fortify the wall. And you made a reservoir between the two walls for the waters of the old pool. What's he talking about? Preparations. As Assyria is coming, Isaiah is reminding the people of of Jerusalem. Remember what you did when Assyria was on the way? You prepared for battle. You started looking at the houses and saying, okay, no one's living there. We can use that wood. Fortify the wall. You started patching the breaches. You started preparing. And notice he mentions you collected the waters of the lower pool. What's he talking about there? Anyone know? Hezekiah's tunnel. That's the, and this isn't a prophecy yet because he's referring back because Isaiah was there with Hezekiah instructing Hezekiah and helping out. Hezekiah had a tunnel dug 1,777 feet through solid rock from the Gihon Spring below and outside of Jerusalem all the way up to what's called the Pool of Siloam. Still there today. In fact, Hezekiah's tunnel is there. And it's fascinating. And water from the spring of the Gihon still flows through Hezekiah's tunnel, making its way to the city. It's incredible. Second Chronicles 32.30, it was Hezekiah who stopped the upper outlet of the waters of Gihon and directed them to the west side of the city of David. So all of this is describing, it's Isaiah saying, remember? Remember when Assyria was attacking? Remember all the preparations, everything we did? But here's the problem. Here's why Isaiah is weeping. The last part of verse 11. But you did not depend on Him who made it. Nor did you take into consideration Him who planned it long ago. You didn't depend on Him. You didn't take into consideration. Depend and take into consideration are the same Hebrew word and what it means in the English is looked to. You did not look to God. You looked to that fascinating, amazing tunnel of Hezekiah's. You looked to your fortifications. You looked to your armory. You did not look to the Lord. Why is the Lord so upset here? Read on. Therefore, in that day, the Lord God of hosts called you to weeping, to wailing, to shaving the head, and to wearing sackcloth. Instead, there's gaiety and gladness, killing of cattle, slaughtering of sheep, eating of meat, drinking of wine. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. But the Lord of hosts revealed Himself to me. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die, says the Lord God of hosts. He is ticked off. Why is God so angry here? I mean, He saved the city from Assyria, right? He protected the people. What's He upset about? He's upset because even though He gave them a reprieve against Assyria, the people of Jerusalem were more interested in their own ingenuity and you might say Israelite exceptionalism. It was more about them and what they accomplished to be ready for Assyria than it was about the salvation of the Lord. What God wanted to have happen when they were holed up in the city and Assyria was all the way around was for the city to break down and weep and repent. Isaiah did. Hezekiah did. Hezekiah rolled out the threatening letters from Sennacherib and prayed over them and said, Lord, save us. And for Hezekiah and for Isaiah's sake, God gave Jerusalem a reprieve. But the rest of the people of Jerusalem were more into their own power and their own strength and their own preparations. And they were not on their knees repenting 
the way God had called them to repent. Incredible. The reprieve was a temporary opportunity for repentance. And when they would not repent, Babylon would come. So we have to connect. And I had never done this before. Connect the Assyrian attack around 701 with the Babylonian attack in the lower 600s and into 586 when they finally destroyed it. Those two are connected in a divine way. The first was a great warning. God supernaturally intervened and saved the people, but it was a warning. You're headed down the wrong road. They did not repent. And so Babylon came. Babylon rose. Isaiah bridges the conquest of Assyria with the conquering of Babylon. In the first, my friends, there was a reprieve. In the second one, there would be ruin and wrath. Now listen. It's going to happen again. Exactly as it happened the first time, it will happen again. The Gutman Avi Chai report just came out. I'm sure you all have been reading that. (laughs) A week ago, Sunday, January 29th, 2012, the findings of an interesting report were released regarding Jewish religiosity in Israel. It's called A Portrait of Israeli Jews, Beliefs, Observant, and Values of Israeli Jews. And if you just just, uh, Google Gutman, G-U-T-T-M-A-N, dash Avi, A-V-I, Chai, C-H-A-I. And I can give that to you if you're interested. But you can Google that and call it up. Or just Google Israel Democracy Institute. Because what they did was they they gave a survey back in 2009. Um, The Gutman Center for Surveys did this for the Avi Chai Foundation. They did this survey in 2009. It's a sequel to earlier surveys they did in 1999 and then earlier in 1991. So three surveys looking at Jewish life in Israel. Jewish belief systems in Israel, what what the Jewish people think and believe and how they're living. After more than two years of analysis, the survey reveals, check this out, 80% of Israeli Jews believe in God. Over 67% of Israeli Jews accept the biblical principle that the Jewish people have been chosen by God for a specific prophetic destiny. That's pretty interesting. 65% believe the Torah and the precepts are God-given. And another 71% of respondents said they want increased biblical studies in Israeli schools. Israel's going this direction. America's going that direction. 56% believe in a world to come and fully 51% now believe in the coming of Messiah. These are Israeli Jews today, as of 2009. But what's really interesting about the report is when you compare survey responses in 2009 to 1999 and 1991, and what you see goes like this. It's a vast increase in all of these areas of true Jewish religiosity there in the land. Something's changing in Israel. There's something going on in the heart of the people. But my question is, will it be enough? Think about what history has taught us and what prophecy declares. Assyria besieges Jerusalem in Hezekiah's rule. God supernaturally protected the city, giving them reprieve to repent, as we just read. But instead, they rejoiced and partied, as in verse 13, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. (laughs) And you know people quote that today stupidly? Party on! Tomorrow we may die! And they laugh it off. And that is exactly what the people were doing in Jerusalem. Saved from Assyria, 180,000 dead Assyrians on the ground. Hey, party on! Woo-hoo. Break out the wine! Get on the rooftop! Let's dance! Let's sing! And God's saying, What? Did you just miss what happened here? Do you realize you were on the brink of annihilation and I supernaturally stopped it? How is that going to be repeated? Syria, supernaturally stopped. Babylon sacks Jerusalem. In Zedekiah's rule. So you got from Hezekiah to Zedekiah. Reprieve, ruin. See the pattern? Assyria, reprieve. Babylon, ruin. Hezekiah prays, gets deliverance. Zedekiah parlays. 
trying to go down to Egypt and other places to get back up, and he experiences devastation. Fast forward to the not-too-distant future. Ezekiel chapter 38 declares that an attack will come on Israel, the Gog-Magog invasion. What's going to happen? Jerusalem is going to be surrounded. Massive onslaught of international forces will come against Israel, and Ezekiel declares God will supernaturally intervene. He's going to stop it. And all the people of Israel, no doubt, will rejoice, will party, will feast, will declare what a wonderful day it is, and there will be no doubt, according to Ezekiel, no doubt that God is the one who did it. Just like the routing of Assyria, they will have a reprieve for repentance. But they won't repent. History is going to repeat itself again. I think, however, the remnant of Israel may begin to rise right there. At that reprieve, that may be when the heart of at least a remnant of the Jewish people starts to say, huh, maybe we missed something here. But Babylon is going to rise. Babylon in the tribulation. Devastation. Finally, the remnant of Israel will flee Jerusalem altogether and Jerusalem will be destroyed. 10% of the city is going to fall simply to an earthquake. The rest of it is going to be in the center of the whole mess. Armageddon it? It's not about the generic belief that you're a chosen person that will save the Jewish people. A lot of casual Christians think it's just because they show up at church that they're going to be saved. It's not about the right fortifications or whether the IDF is prepared or whether the nuclear facility at Demona is in good working condition. It's not about whether Israel is able to take out Iran's nuclear facilities. Here's the issue. The result of not looking to the Lord is grave. Look again at verse 14. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you until you die. Listen, the Targum, which is the Aramaic paraphrase of the Hebrew Scriptures, translates that verse this way. Surely this iniquity shall not be forgiven you till ye die the second death. Until you die the second death? First death is temporary. The first death is physical. Everybody's going to die, save those who perhaps are alive at the time of the rapture. The second death is spiritual and eternal. That's the one that is forever. Revelation chapter 2.11, He who has an ear, let him hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, he who overcomes will not be hurt by the second death. Dwight Moody, one of my favorite quotes, said, He who is born once will die twice. He who is born twice will die once. And I like to add, if at all. <laughs> because if you're born of water and the Spirit, if you're physically born of the flesh, as we all have been, and you're born again, you have no fear of the second death. No worry whatsoever. That's not a reprieve, gang. That's redemption. And it is permanent. It's not just, okay, I'm going to give you a break. It's, you're saved. No fear of the second death. Jerusalem will have redemption when the remnant looks to Jesus. And that's the critical phrase in the whole passage, the latter half of verse 11. You did not look to Him. You did not depend on Him. You did not take into consideration Him. Again, you didn't look to Him. The Lord was angry. You didn't look to Me. But Zechariah chapter 12, verse 8 says, In that day the Lord will defend the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And the one who is feeble among them in that day will be like David. And the house of David will be like God and the angel of the Lord before them. I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication. So they will look on me whom they have pierced. And they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son. And they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Gang, the Lord gives reprieves all the time. We've got to not mistake that for redemption. 
The Lord gives people second, third, fourth, fifth chances all the time. Redemption only comes when we look to the Lord in faith. And that's what He calls the people to. That's what He calls Jerusalem to in this oracle. Look to Me for your redemption. Father, Your grace is once again astounding to us. Absolutely remarkable. And I am convicted again, Father, in that I I want to give grace like You do. I want to see the world the way You do. I want to have the kind of compassion that Isaiah showed. The kind of care for the nations, Lord, that You project even as You gave these warnings so far in advance. I pray, Lord, that we might care about people who don't seem to matter. And I'm not just talking about the Arab world. Yes, Lord, we need to care like we never have before. I'm talking about those who are right in our own neighborhoods. I'm talking about people who we had just as soon overlook as care about. I'm talking about the homeless people that are served in Bellingham every week. I'm talking about the homeless people right here in Oak Harbor, Lord. Talking about people, Father, in our in our jobs, people we brush elbows with in our lives that we just don't give a second thought to. Father, I pray, would you bend our hearts to the lost? Bend our hearts, Father, to those who are facing the kind of destruction that's been talked about in these burdens. Give us, Lord, a burden on our hearts for people who don't have salvation and redemption in Jesus. Bend our hearts, Father, to weep for this lost world in the way Jesus wept for Jerusalem. And in the way Your heart breaks for all people. Give us Your heart, Father. And Lord, give us the strength to bear it. Until you come, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.